Hello, this is John San Juan of the Hush Drops, and you are listening to the Famous Cat Chronicle. Hi, this is Thomas Durkin. Welcome back to the Famous Cat Chronicle. This is part two of the Hush Drops profile with our esteemed guest, John San Juan. Folks, I'm just going to cut right to the chase. Joe Camarillo, the drummer for the Hush Drops, died on January 24th of complications from a stroke and a heart attack he had just suffered prior to that a couple weeks before. Um, yeah, um, I want to tell you guys even though I may have said it before, the interviews for this podcast episode you're about to hear, part two, were recorded initially in February of 2020, so about a year ago, and the update portion was recorded in September of 2020, both of which contain a lot of really important information explaining what the group is all about and where the band was in the process of recording their third album. However, by circumstance, a lot of this information is going to not reflect a lot of the sadness that's happened since uh, Joe's passing. And that's something we're all still grappling with. I have not even broached the subject with John or Jim Shapiro, the bass player for Hustrops, what the current status of the recordings are, what the current status of the group is, and nor do I feel I should. I mean, this, this stuff is still fresh, and everybody has to grieve in their own way, and nor should anybody be holden to some sort of artificial schedule of, so what happens next to the Hustrops? Because I'm guessing they don't know the answer themselves. Regardless, this episode is dedicated to Joseph Camarillo, one of the finest drummers I have ever met. He was a hard hitter. He was nuanced. He knew just when to hit hard and just when to not. There cannot be enough superlatives to pile upon Joe for his amazing drumming prowess. But beyond that, he was a friend of mine. He, if he knew you and liked you and respected you, which was pretty easy to do, he was a great guy to get along with, he uh, instantly made you feel welcome. He gave good hugs. He was funny as hell. And he, uh, I, I don't have a bad word to say about him. Anyway, the the long and short of it all is this episode is dedicated to him, but even though the status of Hush Drops is one big question mark, you need to know about this band. And if you haven't listened to episode two, part one, by all means, listen to that as well. This second part of the episode covers Jim Shapiro joining on bass, the creation of the Tomorrow album, the temporary hiatus they took, the reunion and their plans for what to do. Pay attention also at the very end because the September 2020 interview 
portion where John and I talk about the creativity difficulty during the pandemic. It's really good. It helps explain why I've been taking this long to create the podcast. Pay attention. There will be more JSJ file episodes and there will be more guests now, especially that I'm getting this out to the world. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, this is part two of our Hush Drops profile. Listen up. It's an episode I'm proud of. We're back. Where we left off was that the Hush Drops had already released volume one, the first CD. How did Jim Shapiro become part of the band? How did you get from volume one to the second album, Tomorrow? Uh, very slowly, it seems. In terms of release dates, that's about a 10-year gap. Jim, we were both friends with, Joe and I. We probably met him fresh off the boat. I mean, not long after he came to Chicago. You know, his, I mean, he would say his sister's band, but when Veruca Salt started... became aware of them and we saw one of their first shows we're like oh these guys are really good and we really fell in with Jim right away you said you were in nest with him right yeah and sort of one of those things where he was maybe slowly on the way out and I was slowly on the way in but overlapping to some extent there was some point where I ran into Jim on I ran into him on the street because his mom lives on the same street that my aunt lived on. I would periodically run into Jim, just run into him like parking his car or something. And uh, and he just put it out there. He's like, hey, you know, look, if you guys are ever looking for, because I think Jim, oh, the three of us had just in really informal situations found ourselves playing together and knew that it was satisfying. So he had sort of put it out there and... I was like, well, God, you know, I, I know he can play. I know he can sing. Uh, you know, what what more could, could anyone want? And, <laughs> yeah. uh, so there was a period of, get out, Joe, are you into this? Yeah, sounds great. So initially, Jim would come over to my house, my apartment, and in this room, my office, and it had a piano in it. And he and I would set up and we'd play through A Wizard, A True Star by Todd Rundgren. Oh, yeah. What an album. And that was sort of like a, I think our mutual hazing ritual, like, well, all right, if if we can do this, we can probably do anything else we want to do. It was the missing piece. When Joe started playing with me, I had to up my game. And it, it just, it changed everything. Like, some, oh, things can be this good or this satisfying or that have this depth to them. Similarly, when Jim joined in, Joe and I had the same exact experience. Like, oh, this just kind of this gels in a way that other things haven't. And you're not even aware of that being an option until it happens.
27, 2002 at Shuba's in Chicago from the very first show that Jim Shapiro played as an official hush drop. That was Kevin Jr. Yeah, Jim joins. He's in the band by the time Volume 1 comes out. Oh, really? So, wow. you know, so right, right, he played the record release show and we were sort of, I guess, kind of touring that album, so to speak. Yeah, and then we started adding more and more material and I was writing and I think we were all pretty dare I say it, distracted by our own personal lives. Because I know we were, yeah, we were adding all of this material and I don't remember, there was no impetus. So so it was years of playing gigs and playing new songs and doing this and doing that. And it wasn't until, I don't know, yeah, we'd been, we'd been at it for a while, the the trio, when it's finally like, well, look, look, we gotta, we gotta record, we gotta make a record, we gotta get all these songs on tape just to, if anything, just as a, to, clean house just yeah. to move on and it was a new thing because volume one had been me and joe with very little assistance you two really seem to lock into each other musically but also personally i've seen you oh two yeah together. the friendship yeah. yeah um yeah no i mean god you're lucky if that happens once in your life right yeah yeah um and, and i am seeing the three of you work together it's from my fan point of view, it seems like a really simpatico unit. I mean, the three of you, you know, I don't know what it's like behind the curtain, but when it's time to perform, you guys really lock in. Yeah, you know, I mean, we, we have bad nights like everyone else, but we mostly have good ones. And the best nights, it's real, uh, yeah, it's just, it's like wearing pajamas or something. It's real, <laughs> it's just real comfortable. That's it's, the first. It's, it's slippers, I've never, I've never slippers heard. and pajamas. Yeah, that's, I've never that's heard that. <laughs> what I would say about that. I, I see it, but I've never heard of that. I didn't know I was up against it. You know, pretty polished and sort of piecemeal in its way, very elaborate, I guess, sort of bejeweled, decorated, whatever. I know after we'd been playing with Jim for a few years, Joe had the idea like, well, here's a thing. Why don't we try to capture the sound of the band? Why don't we try to capture our live sound? Like, if we could get that energy on a record, then that's a, that's a worthwhile goal. And I was like, oh, yeah, God. Here we go. This is what we're going to do. In the main, yeah, the sort of the aesthetic for that album was kind of first take, hard hitting, minimal, if any, overdubs. Because it was just, it was, I mean, I think it was time for us to make a record like that. We were ready. It was, <laughs> and, I, and again, I thought, well, the three of us play so well together, but why not? As Joe has pitched, why not? Uh, why not really display that front and center and make that the sort of project with some sort of whether it's abandoned or only just sort of implied generally you go to every project with some sort of either you're reacting to the previous thing you've done or you've got something guiding you and in that case it was sort of like what they sound like on the stage
Where did you guys record it? We recorded in a few places because it was a few different sessions. We had done a session very early on, whatever the first handful of songs are on the record. What, uh, probably like, well, actually, that's like Vague and Tomorrow and Take Your Places. And yeah, those are the ones. Yeah, we did those in a session with Neil Ostrovsky at B-Side. The next session we did was several years after that, and that was like... The bulk of the rest of the material um, we did at a place called Minball, which is probably called something else now, but it was a, just an analog studio and did just did three days there and got something like, I don't know, however many songs we got, a ton. And then it was just kind of like putting the bells and whistles and the vocals on it and putting it together. And in, as you mentioned, we drew in a couple of older recordings that... Like once it was like, okay, well, look, we've got too much music for a single album and mm-hmm. too much sort of crucial music what mm-hmm. i thought were like the load-bearing songs like we've got too many of these to fit on two sides of vinyl it's like surely we could you know find a little hamburger helper and, and make a <laughs> make a double and should you cheat the camera From the 2014 Hush Drops album Tomorrow, that's Have We Gone Too Far. And it was funny because it had been 10 years and it's like, you know what, maybe you got to come back with a double after 10 years. Yeah, it makes me think that the new album, which you are recording, is going to be a triple like Sandinista. You'll do like that single, the double. To... <laughs> I mean, you know, probably not, but, uh, you know, certainly. Uh, I th- Fun I th- to dream. Like, yeah. you know, I think this will be another one where there's an abundance of ingredients and in the end will just be judiciously selected. You never put me out. It was part of a larger decision. I think we were kicking against a lot of things at that point. I certainly was. Just a lot of contemporary music just seemed like, well, this is the way we do it. And, you know, well, you know what? No, that's, that's that's not good enough for me. Like, I actually, and my, my own listening habits, I had a lot of mono records. And I listened to a lot of mono records. And, like, generally, if there was a choice you know i know your own like you're into a lot of like 45s and stacks music and things like that and always like the mono is just tougher sounding um it usually has a little more punch like yeah like when you listen to even like otis redding or sam and dave if you have the choice between the mono version and the stereo in the case of sam and dave they're totally different sessions it's almost like it they didn't just fold down um, oh yeah, no, it's like a, it's it's a more the 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 original mono version that was released on the forty five has more punch than the version that was later cut for the album. 
yeah, all of these things that we liked is like, oh, yeah, well, once you've heard the Mono 45 of I Can't Explain, you know, you knew with the Beach Boys stuff, like, yeah, the Mono, you know, obviously, like, Brian would have done it all in Mono forever and did at his peak, I would say, you know, if it's good enough for Pet Sounds, surely it's good enough for us. Things, and then the Beatles stuff came, yeah, right, right, very rigid about it. And the, the Beatles stuff came out, finally, like, got reissued, the Mono mixes, the Mono iterations of all that stuff, just like, Oh, this is better. This just sounds better. So the idea was like, well, why not, Mono? I guess was, I think, where we were coming from. that most of the songs songwriting wise come from the mind of John San Juan it seems like on Tomorrow especially there it was a lot more of a shared thing like Why They Made You it, Jim wrote that one that's right? Jim yeah which is phenomenal it's, it's such oh, a it's great it's yeah. such an emotional song will the Yeah, and no, definitely, like, and, and he must have, you know, it seemed that he had this sense of, like, you know what, I've got a song that's not just, like, I've got a song, but, like, I've got a hush drop song. Yeah. And and I agree. And if we go on this way, that's Joe's, and mm-hmm. that's an, that's one, he's had that, he'd, he'd had it forever, mm-hmm. and I'd always liked it, and always thought, like, well, I do it gotta get that on a record you know if unless he's taking it somewhere else I'd, I'd like for that to be a hush drop song if we go on this way will we see the other side if we go on this way will we reach the other side I've noticed that a lot of times your songs have working titles that are different from the final title, like Kevin Jr. was one of them. I thought one of the working titles of one of these songs is John is an Asshole. Is that true? John is a Jerk. Oh, John is a uh, Jerk. I there mean, we go. You know, what was the, what's the story I, behind I, that? And what both song both is factual it? statements, but uh, John is a Jerk. <laughs> Oh, you know, this what, was... What song was that? What, oh, it was uh, If We Go On This Way. Okay. We had had this joke for the longest time. It was just one of those van jokes or whatever, a rehearsal space joke about, <laughs> hey, check out my new song. What's it called? Oh, Joe is a Jerk. What, what? You don't like you don't like the new title? You know, um, <laughs> just... <laughs> It's just this sort of, you know, presenting this, you know, hostility in this very clueless way. So, of course, you know, these jokes, they always, they stick, you know, is the problem. And so I was perfectly happy to have a song called John is a Jerk on the record. And then Joe's (laughs) like, yeah, no, that's not what it's called. And we're not not calling it that. (laughs) And, you know, and he may, he may be very well have been right about that. He he won the day on that one. That may have been a distracting title. 
you know, I have a song <laughs> called James is a Brat about my youngest son. <laughs> and yeah, James doesn't like it, I, I guess is what I'll say about <laughs> it. So that prop, you know, maybe that doesn't go on a record. This town doesn't matter what you say. It gets harder every day. This town makes no difference. What I do isn't good enough for you. And you know it. Wish you didn't know it too. And you show it. Wish you didn't show it too. Tomorrow once more. That is. I mean, it's based on my song tomorrow, but mm-hmm. the concept was entirely Joe's. Like, kind of go for that music. Yeah, of, right. Um, I the don't hot know, butter popcorn kind of. Do you song know the or... right? Exactly. Yeah. Do you know the uh, second specials album at all? More specials. Yeah, I have it. Yeah. Yeah, and so the idea, like, because that's got that real kind of kitschy Jetsons quality to it, <laughs> and then there's a real, you know, there's just there's an art to that. Joe's idea, like, hey, can we bring the title track back like that? And like, well, why wouldn't we? You obviously play guitar and you play piano. I've heard both and obviously bass too, but but that's an extension of guitar. I'm listening to your songs and I can tell sometimes some of them seem like they're written on piano and then that will be the dominant instrument, but then sometimes it'll be written by guitar. But what you do, some of your chord voicings, I have a specific example in mind, it makes it sound like a, a, a guitar sound will have a chord in it that is so unique that it makes me think, I wonder if that one was first written on piano and then you transpose it to guitar. The specific thing that I have in mind is on the second Hush Ups album, there's a song, You Hang Around. The chords that you use for the verses, they almost sound like they started like as piano chords. Is there any truth to that, or is that just you trying to press the, the boundaries of what a typical chord is? 
Well, I think, you know, some of that comes down to influences. And right, they're very, they're dense chords and they're sort of, they're laid out in such a way that they do sort of more resemble, you know, what... Where your fingers would fall. Yeah, right, where we are right hand making a, a sort of chord with a lot of harmonic information in it. But that, yeah, some of that is just, well, I've, you know, singing and playing in a trio, like I've got to pack a lot of emotional data into every chord. I mean, that's the only place I can provide it, you know, um, is just on the instrument that I'm sort of moored to while mm -hmm. I'm singing. And also there's, you know, listening to, I mean, Johnny Marr is a really huge influence. Pete Townsend, to some extent, like Joni Mitchell, Nick Drake, a lot of these guitar-based guitar musicians who seem to be doing a lot of narrating in their chords. Mm -hmm. Like like emotional narration kind yeah, of? Yeah, exactly. Not just like, you know, <laughs> but... um. You know, right, playing these chords that have all of this sort of subtext to them. Steely Dan was famous for doing Steely that. Steely Dan, oh my goodness, yeah. So a lot of it was just, maybe as I became more adept at the instrument, being able to narrate through uh, through the chords I was playing. So I definitely, you're saying you hang around, does kind of sound like a left hand and a right hand on a piano. But yeah, that's a guitar song, and I think definitely somebody like, oh yeah, I mean Johnny Marr, like where there's a capo on the guitar, so, so like he's making these shapes where there's two or three fingers moving around, but a lot of strings droning throughout, kind of gluing it together. Yeah, it's one of those things like very easy to play, but sounds more sophisticated than the mechanics of it would actually indicate. There's a truth to that to great guitar parts or you know iconic guitar parts, whatever memorable guitar parts is that. If you're figuring something out, whatever it is, Led Zeppelin or something, if you're figuring it out and it seems impossibly hard in the physical world, you're probably not doing it correctly. It's yeah. probably born of a more something that, yeah, no, I can pick up a guitar and do this night after night. There's a I know there's a figure in the song Help by the Beatles that George plays after each chorus. And I remember being a teenager and just thinking like, well, that's impossible. How would you even? And then once you learn how to do it, it's like, oh, my God, this is the simplest thing in the world. And of course, yeah, if you're going to go on stage at Shea Stadium, it's not going to be something <laughs> where you have to fret it with your nose. And, you know, that's the thing about yeah. that Shea Stadium show. From what I hear, the screaming was so loud that any nuance, any kind of shading was just lost to the screaming girls, you know? I mean, it's one thing playing Aragon Ballroom where it's just one big echo chamber, but imagine where you're in the ballroom and girls are screaming. Talk about adverse circumstances under which to play. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the number of things that would have had to have gone right for them to sustain that as a career, uh, as musicians, and not be just terminally dissatisfied by it. Yeah. And right, and sound reproduction kind of being in its infancy then, like, well, we... We didn't know bands were going to be in stadiums. We right, didn't really exactly. have a setup for that yet. Who would have thought? You know? You're re right. Their career was something that was being reverse engineered around them after the fact, I think. <laughs> I'm One, sure once Grand Funk made it to Shea, it probably they sound a little nicer on stage, you know. Here's another great song from the Hush Drops 2014 double album tomorrow. This is The Earth is Flat.
fight fire with rain. To my knowledge, you never say those words within the song proper. What's the meaning behind the title? Oh, um, and for that matter, Earth is flat too. I, I believe. Well, Earth you, is flat is in the song. You, you do yeah. lyrical, okay? You, okay, yeah. But, um, but for some of these, like, and I don't really believe that the Earth is flat. Just well, for, no, for the right. record, uh, you know, like, um, <laughs> which was a good Thomas Dolby album. Uh, flat oh, Earth. the flat Earth. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, generally, if you don't have a super self-suggesting title, whatever, like "Have We Gone Too Far?" Mm-hmm. This well, done, whatever. Right. Like, obviously, that's what it's called. You're tripping over the like. Why not call it like a Rolling Stone? You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, well, Bob Dylan, you know, and Donovan, New Order, like, there's all these people who, yeah, it's called Bizarre Love Triangle, you know, whatever. Even um, though that's never referenced. Right. <laughs> Positively Fourth Street. Rainy Day Women number. Yeah, exactly. Like, and sometimes there's nothing, there's just nothing in the lyric that really suggests, like, this is what you're going to call it. It's like titling a book or a movie or an album or a naming a kid or something like the idea is that rather than drawing from the lyric that you're just gonna give it a handle that indicates something about the song that creates some sort of impression mm-hmm. and you know we'll fight fire with rain it just sounds like kind of people playing heavy rock but in a real kind of with a soft rock sensibility you mm-hmm. know okay tim you were talking about titles or the replacements named their album tim but it's something similar. Like they asked him, "Why'd you call it that?" And he's like, "Well, I had to get that some kind of a name." Oh right, I know. I did. <laughs> I named I, it Tim. I can't hold the record up because it doesn't have a title. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, no, and uh, you know, and I, I've titled many a thing out of frustration because oh, look, I just got to put a name on it. Or and sometimes you get stuck with sometimes you get stuck with a working title, a jokey name. Like once you've written Kevin Junior on the tape box, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily plan for that to be the title of the song but then you're mixing it and like hey we're gonna mix kevin jr today and suddenly you have a song called kevin jr because because he's well, singing on it right and well you, you know if there were a better title that that may have been the best title for that song you know? i think it's it's got a it's got a handle it's like why is it called that oh he's singing on it but it's it's so cool that you paid tribute to him you know and now especially in hindsight because he's passed that's immortal that's immortality right there right yeah and there's got to be um i mean whatever there's I mean, there's got to be other songs like that that are you know have the name of a person or something or a place like that are sort of the somehow the name offers a form of tribute or whatever yeah. oh um, yeah but you know everyone does it i mean like you know the concept or something yeah just yeah like, exactly it's just got to paint a picture really
song that closes out tomorrow, Vague, is one of those incredible moments. I mean, you guys really capture lightning in a bottle. It starts with that bait, the pounding bass line and the drums, and you honestly don't know what key the song is in until the verse hits. I mean, because everything is kind of rococo, and it's very much a building up to that first vocal that lives up to the title, Vague. I mean, if somebody told me what key is it in, you don't know until you guys hit that harmony. Yeah, no, I hadn't. That's funny, and I, I mean, I'm too close to it. I've to 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 see it that objectively. You're absolutely those. That is correct. Um, and I I hadn't noticed it myself, but right. I guess it does resolve from a more misleading or uncertain place. Yeah, musically I mean, speaking. Yeah. And also the way the harmonics are playing on that. I mean. Maybe it's just the way it's mixed, but you can't... It's hard for me, unless I was listening and I actually had a guitar in my hand, to know what note he's the Jim is hitting. You know, dun, dun, dun. It's because it's so... Not disconcerting, but you, you're kind of floating in this cloud, and then it, it solidifies once you guys hit that first vocal. No, yeah. I mean, and that's that seems like a happy accident, That just that that's how the arrangement ended up. Yeah, the, the the unseen hand, you know. No, right. Um, <laughs> I trust in it totally. That's yeah. what you want, yeah. It's a, certainly a personal favorite, and it felt good Make when we were making that record, realizing, like, okay, so we've got whatever I say in my own immodesty, we've got the killer... Oh, don't be modest. We've got the killer song to put on the end. Yeah. Like, you know, especially because I feel like we came out of a... And we may still be in that period, you know, I don't know what... Taylor Swift does, but like there is, you know, there is definitely such a thing as the front loading era. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like, well, if you're playing a concert, certainly you'd want to, you know, you need a big finish. And likewise with an album, like how do you end it, you know, from a position of strength, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that, whatever point it was like, bill. <laughs> hey, why don't we put that one on the end? And then even if we completely fumble somewhere in the middle, you know, we'll definitely you know, ta-da, you yeah. know, go out on a high note. I remember you had the release party at Delilah's and Jim was listening to it for the first time himself. And he's like, okay, I want to hear this one part. There was some discrepancy whether that was going to be mixed a certain way. And then he heard the final product and he's like, yeah, he did it just the way I wanted it. And, and I could see the joy on his face. Oh, that's thrilling. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm I learning s- this for the first time. I, yeah. I could see the joy on his face like, yeah, nailed it. He's like, he was like, you know, because I guess there was, he's like, okay, John wanted it one way and we wanted the other. And then the way you had done it, it's like, you could see his face light up when he heard some moment that he was looking for. And that sense of satisfaction, I'm extrapolating this, but he could, he could probably ex- explain one way or the other, but the sense of pride at hearing it for the first time there at Delilah's over the PA system, you know, all of us were hearing it for the first time 
you know, I mean, it was it was definitely a moment of pride, and you can see the thrilling. Oh, that makes me very happy. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, I mean, I think for Jim, you know, for you know, for all of his talent, I think that it might have. I think there's times where he might have chafed at coming into something and a situation where where I was very comfortable making a certain type of decision, you know, with autonomy. And, you know, I know that, that he and I had some, you know, during the making of that record had some, uh, you know, there was some friction uh, because, and that's the sort of thing that if it doesn't get resolved in some way, then suddenly like you're just, uh, you know, it's like wildfire, you know, suddenly you are, skeptical of each other's motives across the board you know so he and i went through our thing with that and it was just it was really a matter of like three people sitting on a couch and trying to find like okay now you're taking you know you're taking up too much of the couch or you 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 need to give me some of the blanket back like okay like joe's got all the cushions whatever like the (laughs) just yeah the sort of operational creative comfort of a trio we struggled with that at at a point you know so just even hearing that like jim was listening to the record and feeling that that he'd been satisfied um he liked the in a situation where he might not have been satisfied that made me very happy to hear that oh cool glad i could do it for you yeah, yeah. You got you got any more of those? I'm sure. Uh, yeah, little vignettes of, of pride. Take your places among the special faces. Leave your faces among the pretty faces. Then love erases. Just leave you all in places. So this album comes out, and I saw a lot of the shows that were coming around. We played a ton, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. and and a lot of like different venues. Like I, I hadn't seen you yet before. Like obviously, you had played Ace Bar. That's where this the uh, inner spread picture. I was actually at that show. I remember. That's that right. I, re- I remember talking to you yeah, that night. You, yeah. um, tomorrow the moon opened up. Yeah, uh, and then you guys, or or it was the other way around. But I think you guys were opening for. I think that's right. For yeah. Tomorrow the moon it was their um, gig. So, I feel like that bar was gone like the next day too. It, it, acoustically, I remember it being rotten, but yes, which is unfortunate because before that it was Hog Him McDonough's, and I saw the Safes play just historic, amazing gig mid '90s, and then it got retooled as Ace Bar, and and the acoustics just were garbage. You weren't the only one who told me that. Oh yeah, no, we were definitely fighting the room. Yeah, you know, to the best of our abilities. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. But you good, know, good show. It was. But that you know, said, obviously, like the great... picture in the gatefold, like you think, you know. Oh, it's amazing that whatever <laughs> that night was not without its difficulties, but worth it for the photograph. The photograph you know. for those of you who have not looked at this album is the way Ace Club had its back wall. It had taken a bunch of speakers that they had probably gotten from thrift stores and such put them all together it looked like the back wall of a who concert you know like those huge high watt stand yeah <laughs> but sort of ragtag like yeah. home hi-fi speakers just this exactly, odd assembly yeah. yeah and it was like a like a patchwork quilt of it was speakers. an excellent yeah. it was an excellent backdrop to be playing behind and it makes for a great picture but but yeah as far as bars go it would... that's right um yeah and i know i know we played in we played at the round Two Brothers Roundhouse in Aurora. It's, I saw you guys at that, that show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Me and Dan Greening went out and saw you guys. Um, yeah, that was the most, the biggest 
I mean, the most touring we did was definitely... You guys had a date in Canada, right? Yeah, yeah, we played in Toronto. Um, played in Ohio, I remember that Detroit, one. Detroit, Cleveland, Peoria, Madison, Milwaukee, Kenosha. I, I think it was one of those things, like, well, we got a double album, we better get Fog out it. there and <laughs> yes, sell it. And we were just proud of it, you know? And, yeah. and it was one of those things, like, like, well, we can go anywhere and show up and play and, you know, good things will happen. Just to give you guys a taste of how wonderful and amazing those shows were, please indulge me this two-minute coda live of the song Vague. It was recorded on September 11, 2014 at Hideout. I am telling you, that whole show was absolutely, for me, in my top 10 shows of all time. And I've seen Jellyfish. I've seen Big Star. I've seen The Who multiple times. That concert at Hideout, seeing Hush Drops on September 11th, ranks up there. And without a doubt, John San Juan that evening was burning on guitar. Jim Shapiro was amazing on bass, not only keeping the time, but managing to go up and down the fretboard and still stay locked in with Joe Camarillo. And Joe Camarillo was on fire. Amazingly. Indulge me for two minutes worth of one of the finest live performances that I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen quite a few. So now it gets a little sticky. 
between this and the present day, you released a solo album. And I remember talking to you at the time of that solo album, and it seemed like, to put it mildly, things were in flux between you and the others in Hush Drops. Yeah, I mean, I think I can narrate that accurately enough. You know, Joe and I had been together for 22 years at that point, and Jim had been with us for 13, and we had we had hit what I can only describe as gridlock. In what sense? Like artistically function, or uh, more functional? Your relationship is just friends. our ability to ex to just you know make a decision and to do a thing and to agree on a thing like. I think that we just all built up enough accumulated dysfunction as a, as a musical family mm-hmm. that we had gotten to a point where if a person wanted to do a thing, at least one other person and probably two would be opposed to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I never presume to speak for anyone else. But it was a thing, it just kind of, it got out of control and to a point where like, well, after we'd sort of done that spate of touring, I'd written a good portion of what would have been the next Hush Drops record, and some of which still will be the next Hush Drops record. And there, it would just, at some point it became clear to me, like, there's no way, we can't, we can't make a record now. We're just, in terms of our just functional gridlock, our procedural gridlock, we're mm-hmm. just this isn't going to happen. And through all of the years, I had been the one person that was never going to leave and was never going to flake out and was never... The Chris Squire, if you will. Just right. I was always going to... Just the show must go on and, you know, would sort of endure any number of things because of my... Just whatever, my artistic investment in it or, you know, whatever... You're just feeling so vested and no, we got to, you know, we're going to get over this and I'm going to let this thing go. And, and I'm sure everyone was doing it to their own, in their own, with their own battles, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, inner, but we finally hit the point where there wasn't really a way forward. And I ended up being the one to say, I'm I'm off, I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. And, and I didn't, it's interesting because at the time I just didn't think it just seemed like, okay, well, I want to make records mm-hmm. and I want to make music and we're not at peak functionality by any means. So I'm going to, I'm just going to go and do it. John San Juan's solo album, Smashed, released in 2017. That's your little red tape. It was, you know, I guess that was an experiment. I liked the idea initially of, well, I, I don't have to, I don't have to agree with anyone. I just, right. and, I and make a decision no... and it happens. And right. it, you know, the, the theory of that was that it would be very unfettered. Mm-hmm. And the reality of that, though, is that it was as fettered as anything else. And honestly, you get to be the boss now, but where's the, what are you the boss of? Like, where's the magic? You know, yeah. you kind of, yeah. oh, Jesus, I'm clearly, some very big part of what was very satisfying about making music was it, not just I'm writing and I'm singing and I'm playing, but mm-hmm. I'm writing, I'm singing, I'm playing with these specific people. In mind as the, yeah. And just, yeah, they're the, they're they're making it what it is. And all of us, all three of us found in the time that we weren't playing together that mm-hmm. you couldn't go anywhere else. We None of us could go anywhere else and get that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, Joe couldn't, 
Jim couldn't, you know, you could do any number of things that were right, enjoyable. Right. But because the album that you made, Smashed, is a great album. You have Anthony Alardi playing on there, the other two members from Chamber Strings, right? Oh, yeah, literally the only. It's a wonderful album. Failing that I perceive, and whatever, it's like this might be like a lot of people's solo albums. It's like people that are in the Who or something. Like, yeah. well, you know, yeah. like. How great would that album have been with the rest of your band on it? Yeah, you know? that, that's the only thing that I noticed that's different. And again, not bad, not better, not worse. It doesn't hit as hard as Hush Drop stuff, whether that's down to not having Joe or not having Jim. There's a place far from home There's a place I John San Juan solo album smashed. That song is called There's a Place. My perception is that you allowed the songs to be a bit more Baroque, a bit more very ornate pop. It was very... Oh, I mean, yeah, right. there's a lot of Mellotron on it and acoustic guitars and, yeah, things like that. Right, and, you know, it was also like, you know, again, I've talked about things being reactionary, and one of the things was because I was going to be working, because I was going to be the boss, so to speak, it's like, well, you know what? What I'm going to do is I'm going to record the drums on one track. Just my little bucket list of musical <laughs> ideas. I'm going to record the drums on one track. The whole album, it's going to be recorded on eight track, which is how we ended up at Electrical because they had a machine at the time. They had an eight track, and we were probably like the analog, last really? clients to use it because uh, oh they weren't. it wasn't getting used enough that they had to like rehome it because, oh, like, wow. well, you have to upkeep all this stuff. And okay. we've only got one guy that's coming in here and using it now. Right, right, um, right, right, right. right. But, uh, and yep, yeah, it'll be done in two sessions and this and that. And so sometimes there is a problem when concept supersedes content. And I think there's there's some songs and performances on there that I really like a lot that I'm very proud of. But there's something about the overall, you know, and I'm, I'm too close to it, but there's something about the overall effect, the overall product that's like, I can kind of see the ideas. I can see the like, oh, you said you were going to do this and you were going to do that and you were going to do that and that and by golly, you did it. And, you know, maybe music at its best is a little more ephemeral than that, you know, and a little less deliberate. Can I be done If I don't preserve my own ways Could the new day still be fun My That song is Love is a Wave from the album Smashed. So you put this out, you tore behind it. What caused tensions? What what caused that to loosen up and for Hush Drops to reconvene? Um, you know, the biggest piece of that was just uh, whatever, and it wasn't clear to me, but maybe in retrospect it should have been, when I started playing with a new band under my own name, I think that it seemed that Joe and Jim were not 
I don't think they were into it. I just think they were displeased, and I can kind of see that. What I can understand that now. Um, at the time, my thinking may have been like, well, 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 what did you expect?" But uh, <laughs> so there was there was some period of estrangement, and and then when we all started talking again, I was just like, well, these, "These these are my people," and I think that we all had that experience yeah. of like, you know, no, this is this is the music or no music this is the crew um and we did a i had gotten my friend Corey. Corey hans had asked me to Mm -hmm. play at this halloween show and it was one of those things like well what am i gonna do and like i was like yeah i'll do it then he's like well who are you gonna be and i'm like i don't know what i'm gonna be but i gotta get i'll I'll just i'll throw a sort of placeholder there i said yeah i'm gonna be eddie money and somehow around that time, Joe and Jim and I were talking. I was like, oh, would you guys want to get together and like do a surprise? You guys want to do bandwagon-esque and not tell anyone that we're doing it? Oh, wow. I wish I had So that's that what show. we did. And we just, we got together. We rehearsed it three times. And the first time we rehearsed it, she wears denim wherever she goes. She wears denim wherever she goes. Since she's Band comes in and it's just like, whoa, this is what I've been missing. You know, it was like somebody tasting prime rib after being on a diet for 10 years or something. So we knew, you know, I guess we were reminded of what we had both, you know, interpersonally, you know, as friends and as musicians. And in terms of the other thing winding down, you know, that's a hard thing for me to reverse engineer, but it did happen. And it just, it sort of became whatever it's, it's deficiencies kind of became more glaring and you're talking the the unit the yeah just our sort of musical functionality behind no no the one breaking down was the unit behind smashed right right yeah and that was me and anthony alardi and jason walker and carolyn engelman and there's a lot of things going on you know Anthony at that point is getting ready to get married. Jason is getting ready to have a kid. Mm. But also, you know, I just, we weren't, you talk about these teams that are sort of very, you know, have this alchemy and they get together and magic happens and that doesn't, whoever the, you could get four great musicians together and not have that experience. It's a really, what makes it, what it is, what makes that a thing or what makes it not a thing is, you know, we'd all be doing it if we knew, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, that's the X factor. Yeah. So that dying down was, you know, I mean, I think that was a thing that we all saw happening. And it was sort of, again, concurrent with, you know, I'm going to have another spurt of of songwriting and was really eager to do it. And there was, again, there was something where I had a booking and my solo band wasn't, somebody was out, you mm-hmm. know, we weren't able to do it for whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, someone's unavailability. And we ended up doing it as a hush drops thing. And at that point it became apparent like, well, this is, if I'm gonna be playing music, this is, it's gotta be like this.
That's an otherwise unreleased song called Monday by the Hush Drops, recorded live at Liars Club, March 22nd, 2019. Welcome back. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm fortunate. And, you know, you the, the, the thing, you know, it would be like a couple that is estranged and then gets reunited or something. You, yeah. uh, you have a great appre- appreciation for each other on return. And I think with that, there's also like... Maybe when you've lived without it, you have some sense of like, oh, shit, this is actually pretty special. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know in a lot of ways, I think all of us are a lot more ginger in our interpersonal approach yeah. because we've seen it be fractured. And yeah, this sense like, well, I'm not doing that again. live in May of 2005 at Liars Club. That's the Hush Drops doing a cover of The Who's song, A Quick One While He's Away. So you obviously are starting and working on a new third as yet to be titled record. Explain how that process is coming along. Oh, it's pretty cool. It started, Joe and I, I think before there was really any thought of getting the band back together, Joe and I did a session just because I had a batch of songs on, you know what, Joe and I can really hit these and... So I'm going to go in with Joe and we'll do them. And we had this great session. And then before I knew it, you know, like we're playing all those songs live with Jim. And I mean, this is another thing that happened is that we got back together and we've played 90% undocumented material. Like it's not like getting back together and playing your hits or whatever. It's like, no, we've got, we're going to play the new stuff because it's just a little more thrilling to play it and then instantly you know we had all these new songs me and joe and jim that were playing together and then went in and recorded those again recorded those songs and right now we're rehearsing a whole new batch of stuff that we're going to record so it's going to be minimal sessions. Um, I've mixed a bunch of what we've recorded so far. I've mixed all of what we've recorded so far. So really just sort of the the data, as it were, is like three sessions and then a couple for mixing and overdubs and singing. Because generally, like if you've been in the trenches, if you've been in the submarine all day with headphones on, banging it out, it's not like, okay, well, look, it, you know... After 10 hours, you're not going to get around a mic and start singing like angels. You know, it's better to come at it fresh mm-hmm. um, for that sort of thing. But it's been great. You know, it it's, uh, it sounds like the hush drops, I guess, is is what I would say about it. And awesome. I don't know if it, you know, you've, I know you've heard a couple of the yeah. tracks. I don't know really that strong. they're reminiscent of this or of that or if they sound like a period of the, I mean, hopefully they just sound like the present day period of the band. I think the way I would characterize them, especially in light of your larger work, they definitely have a hush drops sound to them. At the same time, it's not like there's an identified, oh, that sounds like when you listen to Jeff Lynn's productions or ELO, it has that very, very same, almost to a fault. I'm overly specific. yeah, Yeah. Aesthetic. Yeah. You guys have not, anything like that where it's constricting but 
I mean, when you listen to, oh, yeah, that it has the complexity. I, I remember a mutual friend of ours, John, had said when he was talking about the Tomorrow album, I don't hear a 145 chord progression anywhere on the album. And that's true because you guys seem to favor more complex, let's see, where can we, I mean, it's, you choose not to live within any genre. And in that sense, the new songs seem to cross a whole bunch of sounds together to come up with something brand new. And so, I mean, does that make sense? Um, it's, I mean, I love hearing it and I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I like it. Yeah. It, Cause it, I mean, it's definitely identifiable as Hush Drops material. Like the two songs you sent me are Tomorrow Takes the Sun and The Sweetest Plum. Tomorrow Takes the Sun has this great, almost like a late sixties retro. It's a very echoey kind of Beach Boys, like the, the way the, you recorded the drums, it has that incredible echo to it. The same way I would imagine something being recorded in the basement of the Capitol Studios where it's got so much echo, but not to the point where it's overwhelming. Tomorrow takes the sun Well, that's how it's done Now everybody's talking Tomorrow takes the sun Yeah. And, oh, no, and, it's just a really good room sound. Yeah. yeah. And it, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, something like that you can either do mechanically after the fact with, you know, digital effects, try your best, or if you've got the blessing of, uh, of oh, yeah, if having a big room. Oh, yeah, to have, yeah, right, the environment, yeah. So in that sense, I mean, it harkens back to that late 60s kind of let's record in a really big echoey room and make it sound majestic and glorious, kind of like what Joe Jackson did with, you know, that song The Verdict on Body and Soul. It's got that huge yes, yes, sound that he was yeah. able to capture from i guess it was the vanguard studios in new york city oh yeah. oh right no you mean that then that's that's the way it is i guess it was and is is that if you want a certain sound like go to the source yeah you know, if and, somebody has and, a room like that you yeah, go over there just to give you a tiny sample of what i'm talking about here's joe jackson the very beginning of his 1984 album body and soul the verdict So that's my take on that one. The sweetest plum. This is an interesting one because you, you, you make a drug reference like in line number two. And it's like it has this kind of, it reminded me lyrically of Kid Charlemagne. <laughs> I meant to say the Steely Dan song Sign in Stranger from the same album where it's like it, it, there's a built-in decadence to the characters singing the song like the it's like, hey, welcome to the party. We're a bunch of degenerates, and here's the milieu you found yourself in. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, there's definitely a scene being set. Yeah. yeah like, hey, let's chop you a line. It's like, <laughs> it's like, whoa. It's like, come in right up, jump into the deep end, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's uh, oh, the actual composition dates from ages ago. I had really forgotten about it as a song. I just forgot that it existed because it was another, you know, cutting room floor, never got recorded, and yeah. Joe mentioned it at some point. He's like, remember that song of yours? And I'm like, yeah. And, and kind of seeing it through his eyes, I'm like, 
oh yeah that might then yeah yeah that's not maybe that's not a bad one and uh and so just kind of came at it fresh and yeah. it was again like it doesn't feel like an old song it doesn't sound like an old song it's just right no it like does song not at yeah. all I took my troubles to Peter Took my troubles to Paul That didn't help me at all And that's the sweetest plum of all That's one last question I have for you that I asked uh, my previous guest. I am a super fan, a music fan, but not as much of a performer. I mean, I play guitar, I sing but I've never crossed over the line into becoming a performer myself. Not that I'm looking to, but I guess my question is, uh, as somebody who's been on both sides of that line, what do you think, what you know that I might not know? That that uh, as a performer, what truism, I mean, it just seems like the process of creating music seems so mysterious sometimes. And the process of going night after night and singing on stage to an audience who sometimes gets it, sometimes doesn't. What knowledge, you know, <laughs> take the answer how you want to. What do you think you know that somebody like me who hasn't performed knows? Oh, God, I don't, you know, I'm not positive that any amount of experience has has been converted to, to fact or knowledge. Um, it's like... I don't know. It's like fishing or something. Like you go, you go where the fishing's good, and maybe sometimes it is, and mm-hmm. sometimes it isn't. I guess you know. And I think for creating things or performing things, you know, that's equally true. And I think you can sort of attempt to reverse engineer your most optimal conditions, and really come up empty-handed you know Mm -hmm. and sometimes you can walk into what looks like an impossible situation and oh god this is you know the we've just had a peak experience you know that's about as much as i know okay that's cool right on one last question i promise i'll let you go because i know all good (laughs) are you optimistic for the future of music not popular music just music creation in general yeah, I think well, music's not going anywhere. I mean, it's not it's it's not uh, I don't think it's in danger of uh people you know, the need to create in in society is as strong as ever and the need to I'm not going to say consume, the need to be nourished by music, I think is as great as ever and whatever other, you know, temporary conditions may occur, you know, either in the means of production or in, you know, styles or whatever. I think the, the those fundamentals, those seem sort of evergreen enough that I'm, you know, somebody's, someone's always going to be at it, mm-hmm. you know, both listening and, and making. Sounds good. John, I really thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thomas, thank you so much for having me over today. Absolutely. Hope you like the episode once it's published. I'm, you know, I, 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 I've decided that I already do. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank you. So that was where John San Juan and I left it in February of 2020. Things were looking great. The new album was being recorded. Everything looked fine. End of interview, right? Except for one thing. The pandemic. For those of you listening in the far future, in March of 2020, 
the world essentially shut down because of the coronavirus, everything that we as musicians and music fans knew as normal was all of a sudden taken off the table. No more concerts, no more studio, rehearsals were near impossible, and we had to make do with Zoom, with FaceTime, with passing recordings back and forth and adding to them. Things were way, way different. And so in September of 2020, John San Juan and I spoke of where the Hush Drops were, the status of their recordings, what to expect in the future. Even though some of this has been since rendered obsolete by events that have happened recently, it's worth a listen because there's a lot of good insight and a lot of clues as to where the Hush Drops recordings were at the time. When we last spoke was back in February, the world had not shut down. You guys were planning on recording songs for a third album and boom, we all had what I have been calling an extended corona holiday. How have the Hush Drops re-strategized since then, and what's what? Take us there. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, the world was a very different place last time we spoke. Sure enough, you know, the record was in progress, the third album. Most of it recorded, but a very crucial amount of it not recorded. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you know, yeah, there were sessions booked, was all meant to go down, I think, in early April or late March, you know, the final recordings for the record. Mm-hmm. And honestly, some of them, you know, I would say the most load-bearing songs, mm-hmm. thematically and structurally and so on. So, yeah, you know, obviously we did not go into a small room and rehearse and go into a recording studio and play and get on microphones and all of that. So, yeah, you know, we ended up in the same sort of holding pattern as most people where uh, we were all ready to go and then suddenly we weren't. And what do you do? You know, you've got to adjust. And in terms of the larger picture, the record, Mm -hmm. I think it's just a matter of being patient and waiting until it's safe to congregate again and make music. Mm -hmm. Because it's the sort of thing, you know, you can't remote collaborate. Not the the way I've heard. Yeah, the way you guys play is, is even in the studio, you mentioned a lot of live face-to-face, you know, obviously sound isolated, but basically recorded all at one time, right? Right, exactly. It's the sort of thing that you couldn't remote collaborate. I mean, honestly, all it requires on our end at this point is patience. Do it safely. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, we were all set to go and wrap it up, bring it into the home stretch. And obviously, a lot of things changed very suddenly. So, we've not been in the recording studio. Mm -hmm. uh, Is that even an option? Uh, As far as I'm concerned, it's not. I think the amount of risk and the amount of heavy lifting involved you know just doesn't seem worth it it seems like well everybody is being patient with one thing or another you know kids birthdays and people's weddings and all sorts of things like that oh yeah so if there's an enforced timeout however unwelcome in the middle of making a record put a happy face on it and make the best of it i think the plan is yeah to resume our work at some whenever this is at some indeterminate point Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, you know, we've got so much music recorded, some of it for the record, some of it not, that a few weeks into all of this, I think when I realized, you know, once we all realized this is going to be, who knows how long this is all going to be, 
shut down, why not put some of that music out there Mm -hmm. in some form? So I had all the work that we'd done so far mastered. Uh We put out an EP in, I think, think at the beginning of August. Uh Just a four-song EP, because it seems like, again, you know, you don't know how long this is all going to go down. Mm -hmm. Why not put a little music out there and put it out there in some safe way where, you know, people don't have to go into a building to collect it. You know, they can... uh, Oh, yeah. Download it in their own homes. I noticed that you've given it the title of Endless Summer. Was that meant to be a Beach Boys reference? I think it's more a reference just to the uh, current state of events, the current state of affairs. It's about the most endless summer that I ever had. Yeah, Um, it's, yeah. Spring might have been a little more endless, um, but uh, yeah. Not a Beach Boys reference so much as just a recontextualizing of a well-worn title (laughs) to mean something very different. doesn't go there from the endless summer ep have you been inspired during this time to write new material as well not horribly yeah i gotta say i'd had a huge a really good couple years pretty fruitful three years prior to lockdown of really generating a lot of music right it is the sort of thing for me at any rate that is very cyclical where it just comes and goes right you could write 10 songs in a day and then you could not write any songs for two years right or it's something i've learned to be comfortable with especially you know there aren't a ton of people in their 50s just cranking it out yeah so now i've been uh yeah i haven't been especially active in that area mm-hmm. It's been sporadic. There's been some activity, I think, without the gigging and rehearsing and recording. I will say the things that I have done in the past half a year, whatever I've come up with, it seems a lot more abstract Mm -hmm. because it isn't going, it's not going to the mill. Right. When we reconvene, whenever we reconvene, Mm -hmm. how much of that is worthy and how much of it isn't oh yeah and then i think part of the process i guess is also not just you know you're a songwriter you write songs or whatever but also there's a loop of feedback within especially in bands and things like that where you may write a half a dozen things and someone else will react or respond in a way that's unexpected i mean it's something that i do when i play with other writers it's obvious like oh you know i'm this song's generating way more enthusiasm than another song. Right. I've been my efforts have been pretty halting during this time and it just I haven't felt that Oh no, definitely. Know, and that's obligated or compelled yeah. to really plug away at it. And that's one thing I've found the more I speak to songwriters like yourself, like Todd, like Frankie, it's when the inspiration is not coming naturally, it's not always 
a good idea to force it or try to reverse engineer it because the results you come up with sometimes due to that process can be rather unsatisfying. Oh, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've never, yeah, I don't think I've ever really been able to generate anything fruitful from that method. Mm -hmm. It, It really is like optimally i think it's like finding a five dollar bill in the street or something Mm -hmm. so when it happens that way it's great but when it doesn't you know i'm definitely not someone to go running at it yeah i don't know it's interesting because i guess you've talked to other people about this it isn't it's interesting to hear that maybe a lot of people don't want to just go running at it out of some sense of obligation yeah todd leiter weintraub had a really good quote He's like, if you asked me to write a song, I'd be able to write you a song in an instant. It might be a shitty song. <laughs> so he's he's like, for all every single thing that would come out necessarily doesn't necessarily mean that it would be a worthy endeavor, like worth committing to tape. Right. I think there's a huge difference between just basic aptitude and whatever it is that really makes someone feel something. The magic time. You know, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's... Yeah, the difference between aptitude and magic is huge. You know, and it's also, if you're not under contract, which I've never really been Mm -hmm. under any sort of contract as a writer, that those pressures aren't there. If you have a certain amount of work, you know, you've got an album in the can or, you know, an album's worth of songs plus, you know, just sort of waiting to be unleashed. You know, there's not a huge... It's just not a huge incentive or drive to go chasing it. Mm -hmm. I think my own efforts, not so much musically, whenever I've been faced with a deadline, the minutes are ticking. Sometimes the sheer adrenaline of making sure to have something, anything at deadline will occasionally turn out good results. But in this day and age, it's hard, harder, even myself with the podcast, to inspire yourself to get the thing done, to hit the deadlines because we're in one big holding pattern. And so what I've been doing, at least for myself, for everyone, is giving everyone that much extra, a little bit of grace. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you can't sort of, can't trick yourself into perceiving a deadline that isn't really there. Right, or knowing that if you were to force it, the issue, and put an artificial deadline on there, you're probably not going to be satisfied with either the process or the product right exactly yeah um you know and that's a i mean i suppose that's a luxury in a way you know if you want to really look at the good side of all of us being petrified in this moment um, shackled to our couches right and just you know avoiding the germs (laughs) um i guess there is a luxury in that Mm -hmm. there's just a lot less pressure Mm -hmm. and you know if you sort of live at a certain pace of pressure Mm -hmm. you know having a sort of enforced like well look now you now you're in a timeout yeah like i i know that i reacted quite positively to that initially and thought you know well i i didn't want it like this right uh, i'll take it i was one now i'm two I found you 
summer EP. That's Wake Up Love. Buckle up, kids. This next interview segment, again, recorded in September 2020, gets a little bit, uh, let's say, heart-grabbingly prescient. Uh, pretty good at, uh, well, you listen. Okay, so just wrapping this part up, what do you see still, corona or no corona, for the future of the hush drops? Um, you know, the, the main thing right now is at whatever point we're able to reconvene to finish the record mm-hmm. and get it out there. You know, that's really the main thing. That's the sort of, you know, that's where the energy has been and that's where the energy was, mm-hmm. you know, before the shutdown. Yep. And it's one of those things, you know, without giving too much away, it just happened to be a record that in terms of its content and character and performance that I was especially like, oh, man, this is, I mean, it was, you know, I was excited about it. I am excited about Mm -hmm. it. Just kind of wait till they hear this. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, having a record, this experience that we're all having, I guess, Mm -hmm. to put... uh, so perspective on its lack of uniqueness, you know, to be sort of in that warm up, like, oh boy, they're going to, you know, they're going to shit when they hear this <laughs> and to have it kind of everything shut down mm-hmm. two thirds of the way through or whatever. Um, it's a bit like, if you'll forgive the comparison, it's a bit like this far through, you know, making Tommy or Sergeant Pepper or some dark side of the moon or something. And well, well, you got a bunch of songs, you know, you could put something out. It's like, yeah, no, we really can't put it out without A Day in the Life or Overture. Or, right. Oh, yeah. It's us and them, whatever. Um, this, you know, the idea that it's already such a work, such a sort of. It sounds like. As if it is such a sort of long term, rather a long form work that's sort of of a piece mm-hmm. that's really embolden the sense of well you know wait it out mm-hmm. and when you're able to finish building the puzzle finish building the puzzle um and it's just something to look forward to i guess oh yeah at this point oh yeah that's good to hear that that at the end of this all the hush drops are going to be there stronger than ever with an album that's going to knock our socks off yeah and you know there's of course you know there's always the thing where you think well you know heaven forbid you know let nobody get hit by a car you know, or get sick right exactly like that there's reasonably high stakes there it's always uh i don't know it's always been a a, a part of the process that i've liked is the having something to look forward to mm-hmm. having a goal mm-hmm. and uh much as I really like to knock things out quickly, mm-hmm. you know, still the incentive of having things to look forward to is, uh, I think that's evergreen. I think anyone can relate to that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to find something that's in plain sight. I'd like to do something good every night. I'd like to keep saying that my head's been screwed on. One of the songs recorded for the third Hush Trust album, yet to be titled, 
and yet to be determined, unfortunately. So there you have it, folks. Thank you for listening to my profile of Hush Drops. John San Juan is the guitarist. Jim Shapiro is the bass player. And the amazing drummer was Joe Camarillo. Joe, I I can't tell you how badly we're all going to miss you without question. And you were amazing. You were a great drummer, as all of the music that you've left us will attest to. Stay tuned for more episodes of the famous Cat Chronicle. And if I hear anything more about what the status of Hush Drops is, you guys will be the first to know. Till then, I'm Thomas Durkin. This is the Famous Cat Chronicle. Thank you so much. That one might be the keeper. Mm-hmm.